Good morning. Today's scripture reading comes from Micah and 1 Corinthians. Micah, the reading is on page 659 in your pew Bible. Listen to what the Lord says. Stand up, plead your case before the mountains. Let the hills hear what you have to say. Hear, O mountains, the Lord's accusation. Listen, you everlasting foundations of the earth. For the Lord has a case against his people. He is lodging a charge against Israel. My people, what have I done to you? How have I burdened you? Answer me. I brought you up out of Egypt and redeemed you from the land of slavery. I sent Moses to lead you, also Aaron and Miriam. My people, remember what Balak, the king of Moab, counseled and what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered. Remember your journey from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? And going to page 807 in your pew Bible. First Corinthians, first chapter. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise man? Where is the scholar? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since the wisdom of God, the world through, excuse me, for since the, in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand miraculous signs, and Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ as crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and wisdom of, and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than, wiser than man's wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. Brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influ influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things, and things that are not, to nullify, nullify things that are, so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God, that is, our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, you are glorious and mighty and powerful. And also, you made yourself 
poor and humble in heart. We want to be like you, Lord. Please help us to grow a little bit closer to you and more like you today. In your name, amen. This is a little before some of our time, but how many people have heard of the Jesus movement? Movement. Yes? Do you know what it was? No? A movement toward Jesus. True. So, rather than try to explain it, because I'll probably use even more words than this if I did that, um, I'm going to read what Wikipedia, that fount of all knowledge, says. The Jesus movement was an evangelical Christian movement which began on the west coast of the United States in the late 1960s and early 1970s, and it primarily spread through North America, Europe, and Central America before it subsided in the late 1980s. Members of the movement were called Jesus people, or Jesus freaks. Its predecessor, the charismatic movement, had already been in full swing for about a decade. It involved mainline Protestants and Roman Catholics who testified to having supernatural experiences similar to those recorded in the Acts of the Apostles, especially speaking in tongues. Both of these movements held that they were calling the church back to a more biblical picture of Christianity in which the gifts of the Spirit would be restored to the church. The Jesus movement left a legacy that included the formation of various denominations as well as other Christian organizations, and it also influenced the development of both the contemporary Christian left and Christian right. How did this movement influence the development of both the Christian left and the Christian right? Whether we're part of that movement or not, whether we were alive when that was happening or not, we want to be Jesus' people, right? This is why we're here. Um, and we want to be people who belong to Jesus, people who identify with Jesus, people who live out the way of Jesus. So, at the very beginning of this talk, I want to say, because I don't feel like I do this, and I'm not sure that people in churches generally do this, let's give our brothers and sisters in Christ some credit on both the left and the right that they, whoever they are in relation to us, also want to be people who belong to Jesus, people who identify with Jesus, and people who live in the way of Jesus. Sometimes there are people who are power-hungry, and they use the name of Christ in a way that's not appropriate, and sometimes there are people who want an excuse for sin, and they use the way of Christ, the name of Christ, in a way that's not appropriate, but I think for most people in most ordinary, everyday churches, whether they're on the right or the left, they want to be people who identify with Jesus and who are living the way of Jesus. And we need to give each other some credit for that. I want to give us a couple, before we dig into the passages for today, which are awesome and super meaty, um, I want to give some examples of how two people or two groups of people, both of whom love Jesus, 
and know and respect the Bible and believe the Bible is God's word can have completely different perspectives on how to live out the way of Jesus from the Bible. It is possible for Jesus-loving people on different sides of an issue to still love Jesus and still take the Bible seriously and come to a different conclusion. I want to give some examples of this. Because last week we talked about how we're supposed to be perfectly united in mind and heart. And Lorna quite rightly said, how's that supposed to happen? Um, and, and here's a picture of how it can possibly not happen. Even when we put Jesus first and we take the word seriously. Here, I'm going to give us two examples, two issues that may or may not be related to our church life. The first one is women preaching or teaching in church. There are some verses in the New Testament, notably 1 Timothy 2.12 and 1 Corinthians 14.34, but there's a couple other ones that are similar, that say, basically, the Apostle Paul wrote both of them, and he basically says, I don't allow women, or a woman, or it's not always translated very clearly, to speak in church. But then, there are also people that the same person, the Apostle Paul, elevates in his letters, who are women, who are in leadership, and who had teaching ministries in the church. And, for example, Phoebe. Phoebe brought probably the most theological book in the whole Bible, the letter to the Romans, to the Roman church and taught it to them. Junia who some men a long time ago were uncomfortable that there was a female name, so they made up a male name, even though that name didn't exist. Um, but Junia, Paul calls an apostle. Women were at Jesus' birth, obviously, Mary, <laughs> um, and Elizabeth, proclaiming the truth of who Jesus was. Women were the first people at the tomb to witness the resurrection and to tell people about the resurrection, which is the good news. Philip's daughters are noted in Acts as being prophets. And we also see how Jesus communicated himself to women. So, both of these things are in the Bible. The temptation would be to say, well, this is the part that's important and this part is just not. But then you're saying that somehow some of the word of God isn't as inspired as some other parts of the word of God. Or you could say none of the Bible is inspired and you just kind of figure out which part is the best one somehow. And neither of those things make sense. And so in both, the whole Bible is inspired by God. Somehow, both pieces have to be able to be held in tension and able to be true and reflect something of what God wants. We're not going to try to solve that issue right now, but that's an example. There's another example. Young people in authority. The Apostle Paul writes to Timothy, who was a pastor in a church in Ephesus. In 1 Timothy 3.6, he says, An overseer must not be a recent convert, or he may become conceited and fall under the same condemnation as the devil. But then, first of all, notice that doesn't say anything about age. It says something about how long somebody's been in a relationship with Christ. But then, in 1 Timothy 4.12, the same book, and the same writer, he says, don't let anyone look down on you because you are young. He says this to Timothy, but set an example for the believers in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. And we also, to that point, so Timothy was a young pastor, 
He was probably, most of the people in his church probably were like, dude, you are way too young to have spiritual authority over me. But Paul's saying, don't let them say that. You have a relationship with Christ. You just set an example. Show that you have the spiritual authority by how you live your life. Speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity. Also, we have John the Apostle. He was probably pretty young when Jesus called him. Mary was a teenager. Daniel was a teenager. Jeremiah was a teenager. Esther and Samuel were also... Samuel was a little kid. Um, And so we have places in the Bible we have to pay attention to both. But this is why you can sometimes have people say, well, the Bible says, and someone else says, the Bible says, and you come up with two different conclusions, right? Let me ask a question. Does God make exceptions? Explain. Okay. Let's, yeah, good, good, well, no, that's, so, God does not make exceptions, I don't believe. But often, often, because God, which we're going to talk about in a second, because God has a completely different way of interacting with the world and reality than we do in our sinful human nature, it seems like it. So, Ruth was a Moabitess, and the people of Israel had, they were actually related to the Moabites, but they had a complicated relationship, and some bad things happened when they were coming out of Egypt. And so there was this injunction from God saying, you're not supposed to let the Moabites into the people of God. But Ruth comes into the people of God and is actually the grandmother of King David and an ancestor of Jesus, the Messiah. So, this is not actually an exception, but it is a, an overturning of expectations. So you can read what it says about the Moabites in a particular black and white, this is how it is way, which is not which doesn't speak to specific situations. I feel like if God were, if God's principle was, for example, to say women should never preach in church except for Phoebe and Junia, and oh, by the way, Mary, and also, that doesn't make sense. Then the word of God is totally up for grabs, if even God is playing fast and loose with it. So somehow, what God puts in place in instructions, needs to still be sustainable. Here's an example. Mary, the mother of Jesus. The Old Testament is clear that you need to have um, sexual relations within a marriage, and um, also there's all kinds of heathen traditions of gods getting human women pregnant, and all of this stuff And so Mary becomes pregnant by God before she's married. And that looks crazy. And it looks totally opposed to God's word and God's will. But it's not, really. She was not unfaithful to Joseph. And God did not get her pregnant the way that all these pagan heathen gods did. We we could go on and on about this with examples. But I would say... 
God does not actually make exceptions to his word. God is 100% consistent with who he is, but who he is is not able to be put in a box that we can wrap our minds around. <clears throat> so, for, some, for example, B.J. Thompson, who I <coughs> work with online, says, some people <coughs> think of God primarily as a God of instructions. Though scripture does include laws and principles, it reveals so much more about who our creator is and how he moves. God doesn't just tell you what to do, he also tells you who you are. That's exciting, it's also scary. This is part of the mess that Barb was talking about. It is messy to trust God because he doesn't just give us instructions. And the instructions he gives us are to help us become, find out who he is and find out who we are and become more like him. <clears throat> God is entirely consistent with his own character, which, the more we get to know it, looks like foolishness to us, <clears throat> including making his word so open to interpretation. That's insane. A more insecure God would be like, you know what, I'm going to make this completely black and white. I'm going to put it in a language that everybody can understand. There's going to be only one possible way to translate it, and everything is going to make sense according to how people think. Because I just need to make this as easy as possible, and I need them to follow these rules. But that's not what he does. He puts it in two different languages that still have a version now, but don't even exist in their original form, and in this day and age, and most of us don't speak them, or know them, or read them, and all of us are, you know, we bring our own baggage, and our own biases, and our own ideas, and, and we read this, and we have our own interpretations, and that's ridiculous, that's crazy, that is foolish, but that is how God works. The word is open to interpretation, kind of, based on the degree to which we are becoming like Jesus. The more like Jesus we become, the more tools we have to interpret Scripture, because Jesus is the living word of God. Scripture is the written word of God, but Jesus is alive, and he is the one who lives out what Scripture is about. That's okay. Do you need me to stop, or should I keep going? Mark, can we pray for you? Let's pray. Lord God, this is a serious moment, and um, we live in a dangerous world. And Lord, we want to 
turn our lives over to you and our concerns over to you. We pray for your protection and for your help. We pray for your healing. And Lord, we thank you that you are here with us, that you love us. We pray for your help. In Jesus' name, amen. Have a seat and we're gonna we're gonna continue. Thanks for your help, everybody. So here's an example. <laughs> the more like Jesus we become, the more freedom we have to apply his word to ourselves and to every situation, including things that happen like this, that are out of our control, out of our expectations. And we can still be completely consistent with the character and the word of God. The foolishness of God is the decision to put his character into us, who do not have it by default. In 1 Corinthians 1, 18-20, the Apostle Paul writes, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. The intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of the age? Has God made, not made foolish the wisdom of the world? Listen, the cross is foolish. It is absurd. It is ridiculous. Everyone knows if you want to establish your authority, you come in showing people who is boss right away. But that is not what God did. From the very beginning, from the time he entered Mary's womb until he entered the tomb, he did not force his authority on anybody. The cross is foolish. He came in humility. He came in nobody knew about him. <laughs> and he had a ministry that got kind of popular, and then he ended up being tortured and killed. That's foolish. That's not how the world says you start a social movement. The way the cross saves us is also foolish. Everybody knows you must believe exactly the right things to be saved. And everybody knows you must interpret them and obey God's law perfectly to be saved. Actually, no. 
Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. But you know what? If you don't understand all the theological fine points and you don't know the full Bible yet and you don't... You are still saved if you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. We are not saved by our right thinking, the philosopher of the age that Paul refers to, and we're not saved by our right doing, the law. God has made foolish the wisdom of the world. It was our wisdom. We are thinking that we knew the right way to do things and are thinking the, the way that we understood everything. Our wisdom and our self-righteousness that killed him. Our salvation comes only from trusting our humble God completely. A God so humble that he not only submitted himself to our existence and our death, but he has since entrusted his name and his character to people like us. In verses 26 through 29 in 1 Corinthians, Paul says, Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. Does any of this description sound like us? We're not that influential. We're not that wise by human standards. I mean, maybe some of you are. I don't know that I am. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the strong. As we grow, God is growing this church because we started off this small group of people, humble, not knowing a whole lot, just knowing Jesus. As God grows us, let's be sure to think of what we were when we were called all the time. Do not forget it. It's God who does the work, and God chooses the foolish things, and the weak things, and the lowly things, and the despised things, people like us. Because when he uses us, there is absolutely no way anyone can say that we did it. God did it. That's why he chooses old people and young people and poor people and people that didn't finish high school and people that don't have a lot of money. This is, this is who we were when we were called. Examples, Mary again, but also in Psalm 8, from the lips of children, infants and children, you have ordained praise. We talked about that when we did our Matthew study a couple of years ago. The foolishness of God is that God allows us to bless him. On Tuesday, we were meeting for morning quiet, and we were reading a psalm that <clears throat> talks about, it says to bless the Lord, and then God blesses us. And we were kind of batting that around, like, how can we bless God? We understand how God can bless us. He gives us what we need. But God doesn't need anything, right? And so we wrestled this around, and we talked about if it's different, if it means a different, that same word means something different, depending on which direction it's going. 
But we contemplated the fact that God is so humble, he actually gets something from us. When we look like him, when we act like him, when we do things that are like him, he is pleased, he's blessed. You know, if you're a parent and you have a kid who you see something, actually, this is not my child, but this morning, Ella was in Sunday school was talking about how she came to understand that God was for her and how Christ was for her and how he, she realized how he had done things for her by putting her in Ron and Lorna's home. And it was so beautiful, I started to cry. And it blessed me, and I feel like it blessed God even more. We can bless God to the extent that we allow him to work in us in our foolishness. This week we had four really powerful passages for our Bible reading challenge, and if you read them, what are some of the qualities of a godly person or a Jesus person that you, that you read in those passages? Nothing? <laughs> yeah, what's a, what's a Jesus person like? Kind? Forgiving, loving, God-seeking. Okay, that word might need a little unpacking, but yeah. <laughs> but humble. Okay, that's a good one. So I was reading these and I was thinking, you know, there are a couple of these qualities that are qualities of God that sound hard to put together, and they're I'm going to look at this one end of this one passage from Micah. Um, so in Micah 6, verses 7 and 8, the first part of that passage, God's kind of saying, hey, my people, did I, was I bothering you? <laughs> like, how come you're not reflecting me the way that I, when I showed so much love to you, how come, you're, how come I don't see myself in you? And in verse 7 it says, Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousand rivers of oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? So in other words, this is now Micah, maybe speaking on behalf of the people, saying, you know, is the way to fix this problem, to sacrifice everything and like maybe turn over my kid and, and uh, just make life really hard for myself? No, verse 8. He has showed you, O oh man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. That's all. All you have to do is act justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God. Is that easy? That's all. <laughs> Sometimes it's easier to do all kinds of religious rituals and, and give up something important to you, and God may ask you to do that, but... Sometimes it's easier to do those things than to actually do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with God. And part of the reason is because justice and mercy don't seem like they go together. Think about it. The foolishness of God is the way of the cross, not just God submitting to the cross, but his people doing so too. This is how we bless him. 
Self-sacrifice and servanthood means putting others before ourselves. The intersection of two seemingly different attributes of God perfectly manifests Jesus. Justice, the right relating of human beings to each other, and mercy, what God brings, it's a cross. They meet in the middle, that's where Jesus is, where those two things are in play in God's people. That is the way of the cross. Jesus is our goal. Jesus perfectly manifested those two qualities, those two characteristics. Part of why it's so hard for us in our brains to put justice and mercy together is because often we think of justice and mercy in our own interest or the interest of our group. And we can use the Bible and convince ourselves that it is also in God's interest. But the justice and mercy that God is talking about is justice and mercy where we lay down our own selves, we lay down our lives like Jesus did for the offering justice and mercy to others. Justice and mercy given outward have a cost. For God, they cost his one and only son. When God put his son Jesus on the cross, I mean, he didn't, he didn't put him there, but when God allowed himself to be put there, he was fulfilling the justice that was required to pay for all of our sin, all of our injustice. And he was also, in doing that, extending mercy because there was absolutely no way we were going to pay for that ourselves. It was, going to, it was impossible. So justice and mercy had a cost to God, and they do to us too. It is possible to be right about a decision and wrong in the way we want it or in the way we go about getting it. The wisdom of the world is centered on winning at all costs or centered on justice for my group or for me, for my cause, and mercy for me when I screw up. I think we all have a tendency to do this. Or, this is also the wisdom of the world, don't trust anybody else, do it yourself. Ultimately, all of these things boil down to pride which is the root of the sin at the Garden of Eden. We can become very proud even in the church. It's super easy to do. But the wisdom of the cross is, like Barb showed us, upside down. The wisdom of the world is, if we were, pretending, if we were that cup, and we were, we were upside down, and we said, I'm full. Look, I have everything I need, I'm full just because we were upside down and you couldn't actually put anything in there. The wisdom of the cross is to say, I'm empty. It's actually right side up. It just feels upside down to us because we're not used to it. The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. What Jesus did is nuts. He entrusted himself to God the Father by entrusting himself to human beings who wanted to and did kill him. That's foolish. Not only that, 
he allowed them, us, to break a number of the Ten Commandments and a whole bunch of other Old Testament laws so that he could achieve his justice and mercy for us. Not for him, not for God, for us. Justice for others and mercy for others and servant humility for ourselves. This is the way of the cross. Because, and we can do this, we can trust God with ourselves and with our families and with our church because through him we know who we are and we know whose we are. We are secure. Jesus was able to do that because he was secure in who he was and whose he was, and when we are in him, we can be secure in that way too. We at Central Baptist Church are the poster children of not having it all together. Please don't be offended. This is actually good. (laughs) We are. If there were a poster of that, we would be on it. Fortunately, that means we're right where God wants us, and look at what he's doing to prove it. So, let's not mess it up. I will tell you, we have an enemy of our souls who was maybe trying to disrupt things a little bit this morning and hurt a person in the process. We have an enemy who is not happy about what's happening here at Central Baptist Church. Has not been happy for a number of years, but now we are starting to really get active, things are starting to move, and we're going to come up against some stuff, including the tendency to divide. Be very careful. Do not let the enemy divide us. It is not worth it. There is not an issue worth dividing this church over Jesus Christ is our Lord. If we are united in him and in his spirit, that is what matters. And in order to do that, we need to be humble. Don't hold too tightly to your own interpretation of Scripture. Hold tightly to Scripture, but don't assume that you always know exactly what it means, or maybe you do know what it means, but exactly how it's supposed to play out in our context. You can trust the Holy Spirit. We're going to talk next week a little bit more about the Word and the Spirit and how they go together and and some pitfalls that can come in. We're not done with this talk, but you can trust the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is God. The Holy Spirit is not going to ask you to do something that is contrary to the will of God. Is not. And... Maybe we can't always trust ourselves, but that's why we have community. We're not all always going to hear the Holy Spirit properly, and so that's why we need each other. But you can trust the Holy Spirit, and you can trust the Holy Spirit, who wants the unity of this church more than we do, to let us know how to move forward in each situation. Also, assume the best of each other. I was talking to a friend this week who said, who works for a secular company, and he said, my company has a rule. Assume the best of your, of your colleagues. And he says, 
why am I learning this from a secular company of people who are not asking God, not seeking God, and it still works? How much more should I assume the best of my brothers and sisters in Christ who love Jesus like I do and who are also seeking God's will? Don't hold on to your opinion so tightly that you cannot assume that other people also are listening to God, love Jesus, and want the good of this church. Do not gossip. This is another thing that happens, and since I've been here, I have not seen much gossip in this church, but I'm going to be honest, I am starting to see it a little bit. Gossip will create the factions that we talked about last week. If you have an opinion and you know someone else in the church about how we're doing things in church and you know someone else in the church has, that opinion, has a different opinion and you decide, you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to gather together some people who think like me, that is not godly. That does not contribute to unity. Even if you're right, that's not the way we do things in the family of God. If you have an issue with somebody, speak to them directly. If the issue does not go away. We can talk about it together, the three of us or however many. But do not gossip. And pray. Listen, we have an annual meeting coming up. If there's a decision that you have a strong opinion about and you know other people do and you don't all agree, do not pray. Don't be so proud to pray that everyone will come around to your point of view. I'm challenging myself with this too. Don't pray that everyone comes around to your point of view. Pray that God will accomplish in us and us and our decisions what will be best for us as a church, for individuals within the church, and for his glory. Being right is really not that important. Glorifying God is what matters. And frankly, I think a lot of our decisions, the actual outcome of the decision is less important than how we get there. So we need to remember to be humble. The best, we are praying for the best expression of Jesus Christ in our midst, the best expression of justice and mercy combined. And the best expression of our trust in him to do the unexpected through the unlikely and to further unite us perfectly in our humble and loving Messiah. It is God's kingdom we're working for. It's God's church, and this is how he chose from the beginning to establish it, through nobodies like us. He became a nobody, and he called nobodies, and he wants us to remember that we're nobody, but in him we are somebody, and he has something great for us to do. It is really risky to do things according to the foolishness of God, because we don't have control over it. But, when, and it's actually, frankly, risky for God because he's not controlling us. And we know how prone we are to screw things up. <laughs> but this is the way he chose to do this. And when we truly trust God to establish his kingdom 
His way, there is, when we truly trust him to do this, there is less fighting and less burden because it is not about us anymore. It's about really listening to him and letting him have his way. And then God is blessed by us through Jesus' character of humble love shining through us. We're going to pray, and I'm going to pray a prayer that I did not make up myself. This is um, a couple people here know Jordan Hearsink. He prayed this once years ago. Um, it's a very short prayer, but I pray it sincerely. Dear God, please let the story sound crazy when we tell it, so we always remember it was you who made it happen. Amen. With the thought in mind of being servants to one another, and in that way being servants to God, let's sing our final hymn.